There are now Strong Opinion Sports sweatshirts for sale. Oh, yeah, by the way, there's also now a permanent Strong Opinion Sports store. And to celebrate the opening of the store, I'm starting it with a sale. Currently, there are four items for sale, a pullover hoodie, a zip-up hoodie, a performance t-shirt, and a premium cotton t-shirt. All four are for sale at a reduced price right now. If you order by December 1st, everything is cheaper and everything is guaranteed to ship to you by Christmas. The pullover hoodie is $35 on sale. At the end of the month, when the sale ends, it will be $40. The zip-up hoodie is $40 now. When the sale ends, it will be $45. The performance-style t-shirt is $25 now. After December 1st, it will be $30. And the premium cotton blend t-shirt is $20 on sale right now. And after the sale, it will be $25. Again, everything is on sale now until the end of November. And if you order by December 1st, I can guarantee you will get your stuff by Christmas. Follow the link in the description or go to shirtsforyourpeople.com and find the Strong Opinion Sports tab. Three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning. Good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 306. I hope you're doing well. I got the music playing. I, I just, uh, I don't know. I want to have a fun show today. I need the music today. We're going to talk about the Cardinals and the Bills, uh, that crazy game, Tyler Murray, Josh Allen, uh, where I see their futures going. We're going to talk about the New England Patriots. I have questions for Bill Belichick. Obviously, I cannot ask Bill Belichick questions, but I can share my my kind of my baffled nature or just my, my lack of understanding of what's going on in New England. We'll talk about that later. Uh, we're going to talk about college football. We're going to talk about a potential future 49ers quarterback. Uh, we're going to talk about my... There's a big problem in football with broadcasters that I think, ah, it'll be fun. I'm excited to share that. I, I don't know if you guys know. I have broadcasted live games. I've done that job before. Uh, and so I think I have unique insight into that world and how it works. And so we got a lot of really good stuff ahead. I'm very, very excited for today's show. And I guess I'm back. I, I don't know if you guys are aware. I'm pretty, I mean, if you listen to the show, you probably know. I've been talking about it for a while. Uh, I got my wisdom teeth taken out. I feel much better now. My mouth is not crowded. Uh, I'm not biting my cheek randomly, actually. that's Apparently, when you bite your cheek, it causes more saliva in your mouth. That was happening all the time, and so I, I, my mouth feels better. It's easier to talk, actually. Uh, now, surgery was very quick. I was terrified, but they got the teeth in and out. I get well, Not in, but they got the teeth out of my mouth. Like It's like 10-minute surgery. It's kind of crazy. They just rip them out, and you're like, oh, I'm done. I got numbed up. Uh, I was really scared. Now, recovery, though, I, it's Thursday, right? It's Thursday afternoon, and I... It's taken me way longer to get back to where I felt like I could actually talk and recover and feel normal. Uh, the drugs, like really, the pain drugs really like mess with your head. I think if I ever get surgery again, I'm probably going to do as little pain medication as possible. It just doesn't, I, I don't know. I felt fuzzy, for, you know, Tuesday and Monday. Uh, now, I don't know. I, I am told it's been quick, but I, I just, I've never gotten my wisdom teeth out, obviously. And it just, you know, my dad had to remind me, he's like, Zach, you got surgery. Getting your wisdom teeth out is like a big deal. And so I, and I've been wrestling with all that. It's like a lot of shame. I hate not recording as soon as possible. Um, and I don't know. I, I want to be very honest. I, I know for everybody in the world, 2020 has been a very, very brutal, 
difficult, painful year with COVID and election. There's just been like literally everything you can possibly imagine all crammed into one year. Um, you know, I guess I'm fortunate. I got a job I love. Uh, and I actually, I'm fortunate to have a job at all. So, I mean, I just, I, I want to be clear. I feel incredibly grateful uh, for the life I get to live. I do want to share, though, uh, as you guys know, a couple weeks ago, my grandpa died. Now, on the other side of my family, uh, my other grandpa has COVID, and he's in the hospital. And it's like, ah, oh, I just keep, I feel like I keep getting beat over the headache. Every week, it's like another thing to, a massive overtaking to deal with. And I got funerals, and I got family pressure, and I'm dealing with insurance, uh, my pet died, a friend of the family died. It's just all adding up. And my, kind of my breaking point was yesterday, the the washing machine broke where I live. And it's like, really? Like, I, I, I just, I, I, I don't know if you feel this way. I hope it's relatable. Every week, I feel like another thing adds on to my suffering. It's like, come on, let me just enjoy football. I, I'm sure you feel that way. Um, but I, I, if that's how life is, I'm not backing down. I think that there's... I have hope that I think next week's going to be a great week. I'm very excited. I got a good plan. Uh, I got, you know, tonight's show. We'll do a show tomorrow about Thursday Night Football. I want to brag at some point about the predictions I made last week because, by the way, I nailed pretty much every single prediction I made. Uh, I missed on the Patriots game. I, I don't know. Uh, but I, I just, I'm determined to enjoy my life despite everything going on. I hope that's inspiring to you. I, I, I really, uh, I think we can all, as a collective unit, get through this crap, but I feel like this year has just been a lot of crap over and over and over again, uh, and just frustration and, like, hitting a brick wall every single week, and I just want to, I just want to be done with it, so, um, I don't know. By the way, Justin Herbert's haircut was news, I guess. I don't think that's newsworthy. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I look, it's, it's a fun, like, Instagram post one time, Oh my gosh, Justin Herbert got a haircut. Like, especially if the Chargers did that, cool. But the amount of, it's one thing to see Instagram posts or a Twitter thing or whatever. I've seen actual articles dissecting how the haircut might be the thing that turns the tide and makes Justin Herbert into a good or bad quarterback. I've seen both arguments. It's like, what in the world are we talking about? I I don't know how the haircut is news. However, I will agree with this one thing. If Justin Herbert getting a haircut is a gigantic national story, then I guess it is kind of a look. Los Angeles, the Chargers have gotten a star. It's been a long time since the Chargers had a person like even Philip Rivers. I, I think Philip Rivers is phenomenal. He's had a really great career. Uh, at least he was phenomenal. We, we can debate now. I don't really care. My point is, Philip Rivers never was a star that drew people to the television. Justin Herbert is that. I mean, regardless of anything else, I, I guess I I'm already talking more about the stupid haircut than I wanted to, but I will say that. If, if anything's evidence that Justin Herbert is a massive star in the NFL, it's that he got a stupid haircut and there were a million articles written about him and how, and theories, and it was on every news show. It's like I, I just added to it. I don't know. I, I don't feel good about that at all now, but I, I don't know. I, I do want to call it out. That's not news. That's not newsworthy. However, it does show. Dude's a star. Um, I want to jump into the, probably what I would call the best game of the week. By the way, new mug. Uh, my dad gave it to me. It's a strong opinion sports mug. Hope I can sell those someday. I think it'd be really fun. On Sunday last week, in what I would call the best game of the year, the Arizona Cardinals beat the Buffalo Bills 32-30. to And it really, it took a last second heave into the end zone by Kyler Murray with 11 seconds left. DeAndre Hopkins... 
had a, a really amazing catch for a touchdown. His hands, I remember just, I see this vision of DeAndre Hopkins' hands going up above everybody else's hands, raising up above and everyone else's hands around it. It's a really cool image. And um, I, I, I don't know, it's crazy and cool. So right off the bat, I got to say this, I guess, is that as you look back at two moves that were made last offseason, receiver Stephon Diggs was traded to the Buffalo Bills and receiver DeAndre Hopkins was traded to the Arizona Cardinals. It's funny, they both played each other. They both had a really big impact on the game. One had the game-winning catch. Uh, both trades have paid off immensely for the Arizona Cardinals and the Buffalo Bills. There's no debate about it. Uh, I think that, I think especially that the Texans trading away DeAndre Hopkins, it just looks terrible. It looks worse and worse. You traded away a guy fighting with Bill O'Brien. Then you fired Bill O'Brien. So that, you just lost DeAndre Hopkins for nothing. You lost him because you chose the coach over D-Hop, and then you fired the coach who didn't like DeAndre Hopkins. I just, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for Brett Coleman, who's a Houston Texans fan. Oh my gosh. Um, but I will say, man, Stefan Diggs and DeAndre Hopkins have both, both really, really elevated uh, their respective offenses. And I, I just want to say, like, it's clear those trades really paid off, and... Uh, I don't know if we'll see if that's the beginning of something where we'll see more and more star receivers get traded. Either it's going to show that they're so valuable you don't get rid of them, or teams are going to say, hey, we'll pay up. We will trade. If we have a young quarterback, we're building our roster, we will pay up to go get a receiver. So I'm curious to see how the D-Hop trade and the Stefan Diggs trade, to see what kind of impact they have on the trade market. Now, Whoever had the play-by-play call, I don't know who the guy was in the Cardinals-Bills game. Whoever had that call had a really cool thing. He said, he called it Murray Magic. He's like, we have some Murray Magic. He said it in the fourth quarter when Kyler throws that long touchdown. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a lot of magic. What, what am I saying? What am I trying to say here? I had this great line. I just butchered it. I apologize. We're going to have a lot of moments of Murray Magic. There is the alliteration in Arizona for years to come. And uh, I really think that Kyler Murray's going to win the NFL MVP. Uh, the amount of graphics I've seen kind of suggesting he should is ridiculous. Look on Instagram. It's like, oh, everybody in the world kind of universally goes. I keep seeing comparisons between Lamar Jackson through this many games compared to Kyler Murray. It's like, man, you guys really want Kyler to win MVP. And I mean, like, it's it's kind of wild. Even during the, the Buffalo Bills game, there was that, what was it, the, the Queen's Gambit great show, by the way, on Netflix. There was a Queen's Gambit graphic suggesting that Kyler potentially could or should be the NFL MVP. So I, I think the media really, really wants Kyler to win the NFL MVP. I don't know that that's necessarily wrong. I, I mean, like, yeah, he's phenomenal. He's a star. He looks great. I will just point out that MVP is becoming very, very predictable. It's, it's becoming very obvious. Oh, yeah. You have people love a new story. Anytime you got a, you know, Patrick Mahomes was this new guy on the block. Oh, my gosh. He's amazing. Oh, Lamar Jackson, another. A new guy in his second year. Bam, he exploded. Kyler Murray, new guy, second year in the league. I knew going into the year, based on the progress he made in year one, they added DeAndre Hopkins. The coach is great. I knew that Kyler Murray was going to explode uh, and it feels like Kyler Murray is destined to win the 2020 NFL MVP award. Now, I do want to say we need to call this game for what it was, uh, the Cardinals and the Bills. 
this game was a coin toss. I mean, it, it really literally came down to a, a Hail Mary at the very end of the game. Uh, it was a fun, exciting game. But I think both teams deserve a lot of credit, the Bills and the Cardinals. I mean, both quarterbacks had late interceptions. They both also had late touchdown passes. So, um, I don't know. Arizona did have the ball with a three-point lead with 4.31 left. They were unable to get a first down and run out the clock. That's interesting to me. It's kind of a flaw in the Cliff Kingsbury offense where they really struggle to, at the end of a half or the end of a game, run out the clock and eat up clock to avoid giving the ball back to the other team. Uh, but again, either team could have won this game, and I think that, on in my opinion, obviously, both the Bills and the Cardinals deserve an immense amount of respect for their performances on Sunday. Now, the Bills quarterback, Josh Allen. Josh Allen. I've kind of figured out who Josh Allen is becoming, who he reminds me of. Uh, unfortunately, they also called it out during the game. I'm not going to sound very original at this point because right as I had the thought, whoever was calling that game between the Cardinals and the Bills was like, oh, yeah, he looks just like Big Ben. And, yeah, Josh Allen is a younger Big Ben. That's exactly what he is. I mean, look at the Steelers quarterback, Big Ben Roethlisberger. You see an older, mature version of Josh Allen. And they have nearly identical styles of play where – I I think it's the way that Josh Allen extends plays and avoids sacks where it's not with speed or elusiveness the way Russell Wilson does. He's not as slippery as Kyler Murray or Deshaun Watson or Russell Wilson. No, Josh Allen avoids a sack with his size and with his brute force, literally like pushing defenders off of him and shucking people away. Uh, You know, and Big Ben, if you go back to Big Ben's career, I'll never forget. I, I grew up in the in the Northwest. I remember watching Big Ben against the Seattle Seahawks in the Super Bowl, I think in 2005, I believe. And, I mean, Big Ben used to run around way more than anybody talks about. People, I keep hearing people say, like, he's a younger, more athletic Big Ben. He's just a younger Big Ben. Ben Roethlisberger used to run around a ton. So I I see a lot of similarities between Josh Allen and Big Ben. Uh, Now, Big Ben, as the years have gone on, he's gotten more and more precise. He's more accurate. He's got a beautiful deep ball. They love, you know, Josh Allen and Big Ben love to throw the ball vertically a lot. And uh, Big Ben is now what I would call kind of a quarterback prototype. It's like a template for, hey, we have a guy of a similar body type or the similar skill set. We can turn him into a Big Ben type of quarterback. And that's exactly what Josh Allen has done and he is doing. And so the prototype for Big Ben, you got Big Ben, you got Josh Allen. And by the way, if you're at home, take a drink every time I said Big Ben in that segment. Oh, my gosh. Um, and then the other guy, though, in the lineage, the next kind of the, another kind of guy in the Big Ben prototype is DJ Uwe Unglele. DJ Uwe Unglele. Got it right. I know that's how you say it. I nailed it. Oh, finally. It took me like 37 million time saying it. DJ Uwe Unglele. Uwe Unglele. Lale. Nailed it. He's the next guy after Josh Allen. They, they, him and Josh Allen play very similarly. They're both kind of the same build as Big Ben. And I think as the years go on, we're going to see Josh Allen in his older years when he can't run as well. He's going to be still avoiding sacks, throwing the ball vertically a lot, really precise. That's who Josh Allen's going to become. And eventually you'll see, watch in like four years when DJ Uwe Unglele goes to the NFL We'll be saying, oh, he looks just like Josh Allen, because that's the next guy 
of that prototype. So, I don't know. I had a really great time. I really, really enjoyed watching the Cardinals and the Bills. It was a great time. Kyler's going to win MVP. The trades for the receivers was great. Uh, and I I don't know. I just I, I don't have anything but praise for both sides, actually. I felt like it was an honorable game by both, uh, both teams. And uh, I really had a great time watching the Bills and the Cardinals. Okay. Um, here's a fun thought. So Dak Prescott, imagine him as the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. Hmm, interesting. So the 49ers' current quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, is hurt often. He's been playing very badly recently. He's also got a lot of what I would call physical limitations. He's not a guy that can push the ball vertically very well. Uh, and it's it's been causing me frustration watching him all year. And 49er fans are starting to go, yeah, this isn't good. And I don't I don't like watching this. It's not working. He was kind of the problem in the Super Bowl last year against the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, now, his team can win in spite of him and sometimes because of him. Like he, Jimmy G is not the worst quarterback ever. But then you look at Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott does not have a long-term contract in Dallas. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys' current head coach, Mike McCarthy, is really struggling. He's not really looking like a guy that I would want to play for at all. You know, I go, hmm, Mike McCarthy. The schemes look old. Uh, he's not very inspiring. If I'm a quarterback and I don't have to play for him, I don't know that I really want to play for him. So I think Dak Prescott's way better off in San Francisco. And so if the 49ers cannot get the BYU quarterback, Zach Wilson, in the NFL draft, I would say that Dak Prescott is a really, really great option. I think that that's one no one's talking about. It'd be pretty phenomenal. So maybe, in fact, you know, first of all, I think that Dak might even be better than Zach Wilson for the for the 49ers. He might be, I think he's better right away. He helps them win more now. And other than Zach Wilson, I can't see another good option the 49ers can really bring into their building to be their quarterback. You know, if Gardner Minshew... Um, I don't know. I think that Dak's better than Jimmy G. He's better than trading for Sam Darnold. He's better than trading for Dwayne Haskins, who's really bad. Dak is better than drafting Trey Lance from North Dakota State. He's better than Cam Newton. Dak Prescott might be the best quarterback available on the market next year. Uh, and I, unless the 49ers can trade for Kirk Cousins, who does have a history with Kyle Shanahan, I think Dak Prescott's the guy. I think that'd be an amazing, wonderful move. Put Dak Prescott on a really great roster. That's going to work. I, I really believe in that. You know, he'd have a great defense. He'd have a brilliant head coach. Kyle Shanahan elevates every single person he coaches. Here's So first of all, we all know that Kyle Shanahan helped elevate Matt Ryan to win an MVP. Everyone talks about that. Everybody knows about that. Here's a couple people you might have never thought about that Kyle Shanahan helped Get better. Obviously, Jimmy Garoppolo. I think he made Jimmy Garoppolo look better at times. Uh, probably got the most out of him he possibly could. He also helped RG3 win a Rookie of the Year award. Oh, hey, the best Robert Griffin ever played under Kyle Shanahan. Ironic, interesting, very telling. How about Matt Schaub? Everybody remember Matt Schaub? Matt Schaub at one point for a very brief time was a phenomenal quarterback for the Houston Texans. Like, it's weird. You go... In fact, I want to do a film analysis someday. What in the world happened to Matt Schaub? 
But I will say, the best year Matt Schaub ever had was playing under Kyle Shanahan. So I rest my case. Kyle Shanahan helps elevate every single person he coaches. And so Kyle Shanahan coaching Dak Prescott? That's a terrifying thought. That would work very, very well. Dak is more talented than Jimmy Garoppolo, got a better arm, throws the ball downfield better, can run around. He's a faster, better athlete. And they have similar leadership qualities. I think the one thing Jimmy Garoppolo, I'm pretty hard on Jimmy G. I really have been all year. The one thing Jimmy G deserves credit for is that he's got presence. He's got command. People listen to him. He's a voice in the locker room. And that does matter. You want your quarterback to be genuinely in command of your team. Dak would be a similar locker room presence to Jimmy Garoppolo. So I I really believe Dak Prescott on the 49ers would be a home run. It'd be a smashing hit. It'd be a huge deal. And I think we'd also see, so from Dak Prescott's perspective, Dak, if there's no way Dak Prescott is listening, that if he is, I would tell you this, Dak, you're going to win probably a Super Bowl. You're going to have, you're going to make a ton of money no matter what you do. Uh, and you're going to be the best version of yourself. You want to find, here's why I as a fan want to see Dak Prescott on the 49ers. He playing for Kyle Shanahan. We would see the very best version possible of Dak Prescott. Does, not, does that not sound exciting? I want to see that. And I think that'd be awesome. I like Dak as a human being is compelling. He's great. I like him. He's going to have a cool comeback story whenever he comes back from his leg injury. And I want to see that comeback happen. Playing for Kyle Shanahan on the San Francisco 49ers. All righty. What do we have next? I think we're going to talk about... Oh, yes. Okay, the NBA draft just happened. Uh, LaMelo Ball went third overall to the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, I got to be very honest here. And I, I, this will not be a breakout, probably. If you're listening to the podcast, it's probably the only way to find this topic. I do this occasion with a couple topics I just don't put out anywhere else. Because I don't know that it's good for me to put out content of me just saying I don't like the NBA draft. But I don't like the NBA draft. It's boring. It's not very interesting. Uh, I think if, if you're a huge basketball nerd, you're probably going to get very, very excited. I'm a more passive basketball fan. I like basketball. I like it playing at a, I like it. I like basketball played at a very, very high level. I appreciate it. I played basketball as a kid growing up. I played rec basketball whenever I can. Um, the top seven picks in the NBA draft were all 19 year olds. And I, I look and go other than the mellow ball. A lot of these names are, even though I know them distantly, I don't really know their game. I'm not interested. Like, I And part of that's just because I'm not a huge NBA fan. I get it. Like, I'm not trying to trash on the NBA here. It's okay for me to say. I just don't, I'm not as compelled by it. But the Knicks, Obi Toppin was eighth overall. He's 22 years old. That's the oldest guy drafted in the top 10. Like, that's, here's my point. Here's where I'm going with this. In the NFL draft, the other league, you have Joe Burrow, Tua, Justin Herbert, Isaiah Simmons, Jedrick Wills, Mekhi Becton, you have all these players drafted early on in the NFL draft that make an impact immediately. From day one, I mean, Justin Herbert's one of the faces of the league right now. Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Tua is like this huge. I mean, I I really like the Hawaiian people. I'm deep in that. I, I'm not, I have a lot of friends in that culture. And all my Hawaiian friends and all their friends, all their family, people in Polynesia, they're going crazy. 
They're so excited about Tua. There's a whole community of people that I think a lot of the world doesn't see that's so excited about Tua. And my point is that those guys drafted in the NFL draft are making an impact immediately, right away in year one. Now, in the NBA draft, not always. There are times that there are a couple guys last year that made an impact right away. Like the rookie of the year, John Morant was awesome to watch. I loved watching him. But for the most part, everybody drafted in the NBA draft is going to be a year or two away from making an impact. I mean, the reality is, unfortunately, and I get why they do it. They want to get the players in the league as soon as possible, let them have a better life and work. I I get why they do it this way. I wouldn't change the NBA draft actually at all. But I, I just know that from a fan perspective, it's not very interesting because it's going to be a while till these guys have an impact on the league. I mean, I... Maybe three of these guys drafted in the first round of the NBA draft are going to matter next year, but most are too young. They're still developing. The NBA draft is full of a bunch of kids, to to be totally honest. I mean, I I just, you're a teenager. You're not going to do anything against a grown 25, 30-year-old man in the NBA. It's not going to happen for, like, the majority. And it almost makes me want to do, like, an NBA sophomore of the year, like a, a second player, year player of the year award, or like a the, the best player in year three. I think that's more interesting because like rookie of the year in the NBA, it, it's, it's a good award. It's interesting. I like talking about it. It's fun. To, it's interesting to follow. But certainly a better litmus test is who's the best player after three years. I mean, it, you go back to three years for, uh, ago uh, from 2020, you know, this past season that just ended. 2017 was the would have been this year's like three players in their third year award. That's what I would have given out this year if I'd done it this way. And I probably would have given it to the 2017 third overall pick, Jason Tatum. Uh, maybe, the, you know, Donovan Mitchell was a 13th overall pick. Uh, OG Ananobi was the 23rd overall pick. Those are all three guys that have really, really done great uh, in their, their third year in the NBA uh, from the 2017 NBA draft. But notice, guys like Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball, they didn't really do anything this year. I mean, they were okay. Lonzo Ball was better than Markel Fultz, and Markel Fultz kind of finally did something interesting. But they were definitely not the best players in their draft class, literally at all. And so all I'm trying to say here is that it feels like the NBA draft is a just big guessing game where people go, I I like his talent, I like his potential, let's hope he can develop a jump shot. Let's hope he can develop into a leader. Let's hope he can develop this or that. Every single player is really massively in development, whereas in the NFL, you're getting more finished products. You're getting guys who are closer to being able to con- contribute right away. So I I don't know. I just know that me personally, I'm not very drawn to the NBA draft. Uh, I mean, I, that's a good idea, though. I should give out probably, you know, I guess this year in 2020, in 2021, next year in the NBA, we'll give out the award for the best player from the 2018 NBA draft. That'd be interesting. That'd be fun. I love the NBA. The NBA draft does not grab me or draw my attention very much at all. All right, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, uh, I want to talk about a problem right now in football. It's a big problem at every level. It's a huge deal. Uh, I feel like a lot of people aren't talking about it. Nobody even knows how to explain it. I'm going to break it down in a way I know how to do. Uh, We're going to talk about college football. I still need to share some of my questions about Bill Belichick. What's going on with Bill? 
uh, Bill Belichick. I just I look at what the Patriots are doing and I go, I have questions. I'll share my unfinished thoughts down the road. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right. I hope you're doing very, very well. We are back. I guess I am back. It's just me in this room alone talking to myself about football and sports. Um, There's a huge problem right now in the world of football. And I think a lot of people can recognize the problem, but they can't tell you why it's happening. They can tell you, I, I noticed there's this thing. I hate it. But I, I can't. People are having a hard time putting the words, I would imagine, as to why this problem has been caused. Uh, and it's broadcasting at every single level of football. I guess college football, NFL, everything. Every form of football broadcasting has this one problem right now. And I think in order to understand it, you need to know the roles of broadcasting. So a traditional broadcast booth has two people. You have a play-by-play announcer, and then his partner, his or her partner, would be an analyst. And for whatever reason, by the way, ESPN keeps insisting they have three people in the booth. I think it's actually terrible. It ruins the chemistry. It doesn't. It's not how I would do it. I don't like it. It's nonsense, and it makes their product worse. So I'm not going to talk about a three-man booth because a three-man booth has too many voices, and it's overcomplicated. And when you have too many cooks in the kitchen, hey, it doesn't work. So, uh, yeah, I have no problem criticizing ESPN. I think it it doesn't work as well as it could, and I I don't think they need three people in a booth to micromanage how to call uh, any kind of football game. So if you don't know, a play-by-play announcer's job is to say what is happening and describe what is happening as it happens. So I'm going to do my best kind of to give you an example. I'm not a play-by-play announcer. It's not my thing. Uh, But it would be something like Brady takes his drop. He looks left. He looks right. He fires deep. It's caught. The 40, the 30, the 20. Touchdown, Patriots! Or touchdown against Buccaneers because Tom Brady's on the Buccaneers. So it's you have that. That's the play-by-play guy who describes what's happening as it's happening. And play-by-plays usually went to broadcasting school. They did not play sports at a high level. They have usually, like, beautiful, beautiful, golden voice. I I can't do it. I don't have a golden voice. There are guys, you know when you hear it, there are some people out there that they could say the word Hershey bar, like Hershey bar. And they could say it, like, 40 times in a row for, like, an hour. And you're just like, I guess that's not how that works. 40 times or not. It's like one every every minute. I I can't do math. I'm I'm terrible at this. But my point is you have some people that could say the same word for like an hour and be like, ah, it still sounds really good because their voice is amazing. And the people that are play-by-play people usually are not experts on football. They didn't play at a high level. They just know the lingo and how to describe what's happening as it happens. That's their job. And here are a couple play-by-play broadcasters to help you kind of picture it. You have Jim Nance. You have Al Michaels. Mike Tirico does it sometimes. Gus Johnson in college football. Chris Fowler works with Kirk Herbstreet all the time. And I think it helps if you can be conversational as a play-by-play guy. It makes for better banter and it's more interesting. Uh, But mostly, your job is to describe stuff as it happens. My favorite, personally, is Gus Johnson, who does, you know, Fox College football. I love the—he brings the energy, you know, Stokely, down the sideline, wow! Like, I I love—that's my favorite call of all time, and I— I love Gus Johnson. He brings this energy, this level of hype that I love. Uh, but it's not for everybody. People don't like the energy. Some people prefer 
a more maybe a laid back style like Jim Nance. And that's okay. There's no right or wrong. It's all just what you like. But I think Gus Johnson, Jim Nance, all the guys I listed, they're all phenomenal at their job. And these guys, play-by-play announcers, are not the problem with football at all. However, I think you need to understand their role to understand the role that's causing problems in the football world. So the problem with football right now is analysts. It's the the people who do live broadcasting, and, and even a lot of analysts on shows that I'm not going to talk about, I think are a problem as well. Uh, play-by-play, again, they describe what's happening as it happens. Then after the play, it's the analyst's job to find something interesting to say about the play. You talk about why that play happened. You talk about whether or not it was a good play call. Was it a bad play call? What happened? Or you're describing some nerdy nuance that people may not understand about football. You're a storyteller. You give insight. You share narratives. And you break down football. And ultimately, you're a teacher teaching football. In my opinion, the two best analysts working on the planet in the world of football, talking about football, the two best live broadcasting analysts in the world are Tony Romo and Joel Klatt. Tony Romo does uh, CBS NFL coverage and Joel Klatt does Fox College Football. These two guys teach the game of football. They are teachers. They're well-prepared. They know their stuff. And they give valuable insight to the audience watching or listening to their game. Tony Romo knows the game super well. He played recently as a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. You can tell he watches film. Uh, I think he also golfs a lot. He probably can get away with doing less preparation. But in my opinion, the most impressive, and I think I don't, I don't want to compare. I think they're both the Mount Rushmore of, of, of football broadcast analyst jobs are, I guess, and I'm not even saying that right. The, the two best in their, in their job, college football and NFL, you have Joel Klatt and Tony Romo. Tony's NFL, Joel is college. I would never compare them. I don't think you can. They're both uniquely great. But I have immense respect for Joel Klatt. He played quarterback at Colorado in 2005 was his senior year. And it's very clear that Joel Klatt works his tail off. He's very well prepared. It's easy to lose touch as you're as you get farther and farther away from the years you were either a coach in football, whether it's the NFL or college, or the years you played the sport. As you get farther and farther away, more and more years removed from your time actually in the sport, it's easy to lose touch with what's going on. It takes a lot of effort to stay in the loop. You have to talk to coaches. You have to break down film. You have to be asking lots of questions, talking to athletes. And you can tell Joel Klatt is very well informed. He's well connected. He's talking to people. He watches a ton of film. He probably takes vigorous notes. And then the best thing about Joel Klatt is he will literally teach you what he knows during a game. It's a very rare thing. The best of the best that do the analyst job in Football broadcasting, they are teachers. And I just watched Joel Klatt broadcast back-to-back USC games, and he diagnosed problem after problem with the USC offense, saying, like, hey, they got to do better against zone. They are terrible up front. They probably should be under center more. They're, because they're not under center, they limit them from having, uh, you know, from quarterback sneaks. He diagnosed problem after problem with USC. And Joel always has something valuable to say. So does Tony Romo. So these two guys, they're teachers. They teach football on live TV. So Tony Romo, Joel Klatt, these guys are not the problem either. Who is the problem 
in the world of football. Because I hit the table really hard. I'm getting all fired up. Um, the problem with football right now is that most, not all, most analysts that do the live play-by-play job, the live broadcasting jobs, most analysts, for some reason, just do the job of the play-by-play broadcaster and do it again. So what will happen is the play will end. The broadcaster says, wow, you threw the ball to the right, to the 40, the 50 touchdown. And then for some reason, this happens all the time. It drives me nuts. You'll have the analyst guy going, wow, he made a great cut. He ran left, bang, touchdown. You're like, that's not insightful at all. You're just describing what happened a second time. That's not interesting. That's not helpful. It's not good for anybody. There's no teaching going on there. And by the way, I have done this job. Go to my YouTube channel. Look up Strong Opinion Sports. I was the analyst on a live broadcast of Washington State against Utah. I was there in the wind and the snow and the rain, the band, the crowd, everything in Salt Lake City. And so I'm criticizing people with the experience of having done their job. When I did the job, I watched a ton of film to prepare. I tried to teach the game. I broke down why this happened, why that happened, tried to give valuable insight, explained why it was a good play call or a bad play call. What went wrong in every single play, good and bad. And I'm really proud of how I did. I thought I did a great job. Go watch it. Go listen to it. It's a really good broadcast. I am proud of. Now, most analysts I've listened to this year in the football world appear to either not watch film or if they have watched film, they have no idea what to look for. They watch the game as a fan, not as an analyst. And so they will often describe what happened again. They're like, well, the quarterback threw the ball right. He makes a cut left. He runs downfield, touchdown. It's like, that's very lazy. There's no insight. How about, oh, hey, he threw a screen pass to the right. The reason why that worked is because they were in soft cover three. He had time to get to the block. Break down the game for the love of, ah, drives me nuts. I really, there's a very lazy style of broadcasting with people just literally do the play-by-play announcer's job a second time. And that's my particular pet peeve that I really, really hate. But you have to explain, hey, this here's why this was a good play call, or tell me if the quarterback made the right decision, or was it the wrong route, or was, did someone miss their block? You have to give insight and teach people why things are happening on the football field. A lot of people don't do that. So the problem right now with football is that most analysts Do not teach the game of football. They don't teach you what's going on. They don't break down football. And it's it's making football hard to watch. I watch most football now uh, on the film, the All-22 version, which basically um, is there's no voices. It's silent. It's quiet. It's nice because I can just focus on the game. I can see everything going on. Occasionally when I get bored, I listen to – like if I'm lonely, like (laughs) I I work in my office all the time. If I'm like, man, I need to hear a voice, I turn it on. And if it's Joel Clatt or Tony Roma, there's a couple guys around the world that I, I like hearing their analysis. It's interesting. Most of them suck, and most of them I just hit mute and don't watch it or I'll watch the All-22 because it's really getting bad. And the problem, the reason why this is happening, again, is because most live college, you know, most any football, college or NFL, most football broadcasters that do the analyst side of the job, they're not teachers. Okay, I want to go back and talk about what happened last week in college football. Technically, I guess that's college football week 11. Uh, You may or may not know I've been recovering. I got my wisdom teeth out last Friday. And so I have not yet gotten to talk about last week in college football. So 
There's a couple of games I want to highlight and go through. Number one, Wisconsin beat the crap out of Michigan. Wisconsin won 49 to 11. And my honest thought is that it's really too bad COVID has already kind of ruined the Wisconsin football season. I'd love to see them salvage it if they can, if they can get all their games through. They got like four left. And if they can get into the college football conversation or even the Big Ten championship game, I, I want to see what Wisconsin's capable of because they are a really, really capable football team. And, I mean, I, I just – the difference that their young quarterback, Graham Mertz, has made, he really has elevated the capability of this football team. Wisconsin getting Graham Mertz reminds me a lot of when Alabama got Tua and we all looked around at each other and went, oh, yeah, th- this is just different. This Alabama team is way more capable now. It took them to the next level as a program. An already great program got better. And so I feel very similar about Graham Mertz. I have said for years that quarterbacks need to go to Wisconsin. I mean, Graham Mertz was really smart to go there because, again, for years I've been saying all they're missing is a quarterback. They, they run the ball incredibly well. They have incredibly good offensive linemen. If you're a quarterback, you're like, man, I want to be on a team that can run the ball. I want to be on a team that can, hey, they got great old linemen. And you want to be on a team that on fourth and one, you know pretty much every single time they can get that first down running the football. Being able to run the ball is incredibly good. And Graham Mertz's vision to go, yeah, I might be one of the best quarterbacks in the nation, but hey, I'm going to go to Wisconsin because I, I believe I can elevate that program. And oh boy, Graham Mertz really, really has. And so I, I think man, Graham was the, the missing piece they needed. He's smart. He's accurate. He's very efficient. And he's what Wisconsin has needed to dominate and put them over the top. Wisconsin hasn't recruited a quarterback this good in forever. They got Russell Wilson as a graduate transfer from NC State. It's hard to count that. Graham Mertz is the best quarterback they've recruited as a freshman in years. He's phenomenal. He's really good. He looks like an NFL quarterback, in my opinion. And this Wisconsin team is dangerous. If, if not this year, next year, get out of the way Watch out. They are a very, very capable football team. By the way, Michigan looked awful. It's very, it's kind of sad. I mean, I, I've always liked Jim Harbaugh. He appears to be on his way out. He does not look like he's doing very well. I don't know if it's because he wanted a vacation and he thought COVID was going to give it to him and now he had to come back to coaching and he's not prepared. I don't know what's going on with Jim Harbaugh, but it, it's just not good at Michigan. Now, number two. USC barely beat Arizona. So once again, USC needed their star quarterback, Keaton Slovis, to save them in the last minute. Uh, USC won 34-30. to Keaton had two touchdown drives at the very end of the game again in the final five minutes. And uh, USC's offense has a lot of problems. They cannot win on third and short. Uh, so third down, you know, third and one, fourth and one, fourth and inches, fourth and goal. They cannot win up front running the football. They're just not good enough to do it and make it happen. And then also, the coaching staff at USC needs to find a way to design an offense that can better attack zone coverage. They're not putting defenders in conflict enough. They're running man beaters against zone coverage. It's not pretty. Again, Keaton had to rescue them at the end of the game. And uh, USC had a ton of penalties. I just I want to be very clear. Right now, Keaton Slovis at USC is masking all kinds of problems 
that this program has. It's not good. It's not pretty. Keaton is elevating them by playing very, very well. Uh, now, he missed a couple throws. I, I think that people don't realize USC, to me, pretty clearly had a problem with their game balls, getting them ready. Uh, I don't think Keaton Slovis is getting the attention he deserves. He's playing outstanding football. And I, USC is 2-0. and They don't deserve to be 2-0. and They've been rescued now twice in a row by their young quarterback, Keaton Slovis, who, again, you got to pay. Keaton Slovis is shredding everybody, making great decisions, overcoming all kinds of dysfunction around him. Keaton Slovis is the guy people need to pay attention to in college football. He's playing very, very well, and uh, he deserves more respect, in my opinion. Number three. Uh, Indiana blew out Michigan State 24-0. to I don't really care about this game. Michigan State is not very good, and I, I guess my, my kind of interest in this game is that next weekend, Indiana plays Ohio State. So Indiana, they're 4-0, but they're really a very unimpressive 4-0. I'm really excited to watch how they match up against Ohio State. Can we really get a litmus test of how good is this team? Are they having a good year? Or is Indiana actually a really good football team now? Are they a building, growing program? Because Indiana's played four games this year during COVID, by the way, which has a lot of other problems. And the teams they've beat have a combined three wins. Four teams, only three wins between the four of them. Michigan is one and three. Michigan State is one and three. Rutgers is one and three. And Penn State is 0 and four. Penn State got blown out by Maryland. So, I'm not impressed when I look at the wins Indiana has, uh, but I, I don't know. I'm happy for them. I mean, Indiana, how long has it been since Indiana was 4-0 and exciting to watch? Been forever. So I'm happy for them, uh, but I think they're going to lose convincingly to Ohio State this weekend. I'm not very confident in Indiana against Ohio State, but I am curious. I'm going to give them a chance. I'm really excited to see. How good is Indiana? Can they hold their own against Ohio State? If they lose the game, no shame. But I, I'm curious, can they compete? If they lose and they're competitive, hey, that'd be really interesting from Indiana. I'm curious, how good is Indiana actually? Now, Florida beat Arkansas 63-35. to This is quarterback Felipe Franks against his old-school Florida who... Remember, he lost his job to Kyle Trask, and he transferred to Arkansas. And um, I don't know. I, I guess really my appreciation from this game, I watched it, and I was sitting at home going, man, the quarterback play in the SEC is just so good recently. For years, it was garbage. It wasn't good. Uh, Felipe Franks played a really good game, in my opinion, against Florida, his old team. He was very efficient, made some good throws. Kyle Trask was outstanding, had a really great ball location. Mac Jones at Alabama's killing it. Uh, last year, we had Tua and Joe Burrow. I guess I'm just glad that the SEC finally figured out how to coach quarterbacks. I'm like, oh, thank you. You have great athletes. You have incredible talent. Now you got quarterbacks? Oh, boy. Bring it. I want to watch the SEC every weekend. It's phenomenal football. Uh, now, Felipe Franks lost to his old team, Florida. I don't know. He, he, lost, he lost his job to a better quarterback. Uh, and honestly, I think that I mean, look, Felipe Franks, he gets to be the man, and he gets a lot of playing time at Arkansas, so he, he, he should be happy. He's, he's doing very well. I don't really feel bad for him. He lost to a better quarterback, and in the end, got pretty much everything he could possibly ask for in college football. Uh, and this Florida team, Florida's really good, man. Th th this team, Florida, Wisconsin, uh, Notre Dame, Clemson, 
Alabama, Ohio State. Like I, there are so many teams between the SEC, the Big Ten, and the uh, the ACC that I go. I mean, I mean look, it's going to be really wild. You got three conferences, three conferences vying for four spots in the college football playoff. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? I don't know. Uh, in my opinion, the Big 12 and the Pac-12, they're not going to make it. But I'm really excited. Florida could get a spot in the college football playoff even if they don't beat Alabama in the SEC championship game. I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I just there there's like six teams vying for four spots, and it's going to be really, really fun to watch what happens down the road as college football winds down. I also want to add that Florida tight end Kyle Pitts, he didn't play in this game against Arkansas. He's a star. And if Kyle Pitts isn't the next big tight end star in the NFL, I'd be shocked. I just, he's going to follow in the footsteps, in my opinion, of a guy like Travis Kelsey or Jimmy Graham or Darren Waller, where Kyle Pitts is a matchup nightmare. He just, he's too big for a defensive back to cover him. I mean, a small guy who's 6'3 and lanky, you know, they call him pencil necks in high school. They're too skinny and small to guard a guy like Kyle Pitts who can body them up and you know basically outbox them for the ball. And then anybody who actually is Kyle Pitts size is too slow or not athletic enough to cover him. Remember, he's six foot six, 246 pounds. He's a huge, massive athlete. He's just rare and gifted, and he's playing super well. So Kyle Pitts, in my opinion, is the next great NFL tight end of the likes of Darren Waller, Travis Kelsey, and Jimmy Graham. Receiving tight end, not much of a blocker, but man, Kyle Pitts, pay attention to him. Number five, this is a wild story. I don't really care about what happened in the game. Uh, UCLA beat Cal last week 34-10. to But again, the outcome doesn't matter. What's interesting is the fact that this game even happened at all. This game was actually played. A college football game played on Sunday. Not a Saturday. No, the next day on Sunday. So originally, Cal was supposed to play at Arizona State in Wise, Arizona. And Utah was supposed to play UCLA. Well, Utah got COVID and Arizona State got COVID. So Cal and UCLA were left with nobody to play. They're like, what do we do? We, we don't have a game this weekend because the teams we're going to play have COVID. And so what they did is they changed things around and said, screw it. We're going to play each other. And they decided to, you know, Cal went on the road down to UCLA to LA. They played a game and it was messy. It was wild. It wasn't very good as a football game, really. I mean, there was like a block punt and all kinds of problems. Nobody really had film to prepare. But I, I guess just this weird, messy game that was put together in like two days is really just kind of a weird, unique very, very 2020-esque story that we're not going to see. I don't, I don't know that in my lifetime we're going to have a game where it's played on Sunday. They scheduled it two days ago. There's no film. They were going to play other teams that weekend. We're never going to see a story like that again in my lifetime unless it happens again this year. So UCLA Cal, just a weird, wild, unique story. The final game I want to talk about, number six, Oregon beat Washington State 43-29. to Oregon's quarterback, Tyler Shuh, uh, he's fun to, Shuh, I think it's Shuh, it's S-H-O-U-G-H, like how do you, I think Shuh, he had four touchdowns, Oregon also ran the ball for 269 yards, they're a, I mean, look, Oregon is the biggest football team in the Pac-12, they are very, very physical, 
at the line of scrimmage. They're a big team up front. And then I want to give a shout-out to Oregon's probably, I think they're the best program right now, top to bottom, other than, I, mean, I think Arizona State's got these really great roots. They're building something. They're recruiting great. Right now, the top dog in the Pac-12, though, is Oregon. And for Washington State to make this game competitive, to hang around, Washington State's rebuilding their program. Nobody expected them to make it interesting and be in this game, and they were. Adrian Hector had a huge day on defense. He had two fumble recoveries and an interception. That's ridiculous. That never happens. Uh, Running back Dion McIntosh is awesome. And then I am telling you, there's this guy, this true freshman quarterback, Jaden Delora at Washington State. He's the most talented quarterback they have recruited in forever. He's really, really good. And uh, he made some great plays against Oregon. I am telling you, if you're out there, Jaden Delora is the name you need to know in college football. He's a stud. He's a true freshman. He's in a perfect offense to fit his skill set playing under Nick Rolovich, who I think he played like in NFL Europe or something. He's a really good coach. And Jaden Delora is in a perfect offense for him. Pay attention to Washington State and Jaden Delora as the years go on. And as Jaden grows, as the Washington State football team grows, I know I'm biased. I went to school there for a little bit. I don't really care. It's not about my bias. It's about, hey, Jaden Delora is really, really good. You got to know his name. You got to pay attention to him. Uh, Two games in, very impressed. He's playing very, very well. Keep your eye on Jaden Delora at Washington State. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, I guess the end of the show, I'm going to end with my questions for Bill Belichick and then kind of talk about Formula One. I got a cool story there about Lewis Hamilton. But we will start the next segment with Bill Belichick and kind of putting him to task, trying to understand what is going on in New England. All right, we are back. Uh, I do this occasionally. Every once in a while, I put out a topic with an idea that I'm still developing. And so what I'm about to say next are thoughts and ideas I'm still processing, trying to understand what they mean. But I think they're also valuable and worth putting out now. So I I guess I'm curious to see how they develop as the year goes on. So maybe we'll call this part one of who knows how many down the road. But right now, I just have a bunch of questions about the New England Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick. All I have are questions. I'm not sure where they lead yet. Uh, But I guess the most unusual thing going on right now in New England is that Bill Belichick recently has just been losing a lot, a lot more than normal. Uh, The Patriots are four and five. They're third in the AFC East. They're behind the Buffalo Bills and the Miami Dolphins. I mean, Miami and Buffalo, these are teams that have not challenged New England in forever. I, I can't I mean, it's just, it's been a long time. And, you know, these two teams have their long-term quarterbacks. They have more talented rosters. They've got better defenses. When's the last time Buffalo or Miami had a better defense than New England? They do this year. It's very weird and odd. And then aside from losing and not being the best team in his division, Bill Belichick's also been doing another abnormal thing where he's been talking at press conferences saying all kinds of things, weird stuff I've never heard him talk about before. Geopolitics. He's been talking, he kind of took a jab, I guess, at the Texans general manager by saying that they hired a guy, Bill said literally, who was not a personnel guy. And I, I, you know, a general manager's job is to deal with personnel. So it was a weird thing. It's like, Bill, are you trying to call out Houston? What's going on there? 
And then Bill, and, and maybe that's because his friend Bill O'Brien got fired. I don't know. But Bill has also been complaining about the salary cap. He's been complimenting his quarterback, Cam Newton, which is another weird thing because the entire time he had Tom Brady, he never complimented Tom Brady. And I guess my question is, why are we seeing a different Bill Belichick? Maybe he changed his style to fit his current quarterback, Cam Newton. Is that certainly possible? Maybe Brady was more cold and focused where Cam is more fun and open and Maybe Belichick's trying to be more fun and open to fit his quarterback. I don't see that happening, but maybe, I guess, that's a possible theory. Uh, But I've actually compared Bill Belichick for years now to another coach in college, a guy named Mike Leach. Both Mike Leach and Bill Belichick have always done the same thing in a very, very different way, where they never actually directly answer a question, never at all. The difference is Mike Leach, ask Mike Leach literally anything, and he will talk about anything other than the question you asked him. He'll talk about weddings or pirates or movies or music or dragons or food. You will get all kinds of crazy, interesting quotes out of Mike Leach. Oh, except for the thing you probably asked him about relating to football. It feels like everything Mike Leach does is all misdirection. And the media, especially the college media in a a small town, usually like Pullman, Washington, where I was when I covered Mike Leach, they're just happy to get an interesting, weird quote they can put into their story. So they're happy. Mike Leach gave them what they wanted. They gave he gave them a weird quote about weddings or whatever. And Mike Leach is happy because he didn't share any of his strategy relating to football. And so Bill Belichick, in a similar way, I guess not really in a similar way at all, but in a way also never really answers a question about football. But again, the way they go about it's very different. Bill has always been way more direct, giving, you know, short or even one answer word, you know, answers where he'll be like, well, Bill, how do you feel about this? And Bill will go, maybe. Or he'll say, yes, no. Or, you know, on to Cincinnati. He's very subtle, short, direct. He doesn't say much of anything. He's, He's notorious for giving the media Nothing. So what's going on? Why is Bill Belichick suddenly talking about geopolitics and the Texans general manager complimenting his quarterback, saying weird, like stuff, giving quotes. I'm like, what is Bill talking about? Where, why is he talking about this? What's happening here? Why is Bill changed? Why is he talking more? I don't really understand it. Is he trying to become more like Mike Leach? Is it the misdirection approach? I mean, I guess it makes sense when you're losing. It's a misdirection where... The media is going to write about your odd quotes rather than the fact that you're losing. I don't I don't know. I, I'm trying to understand Bill Belichick, and I honestly don't. I'm doing the best I can. Time will tell, I guess. I mean, a weird thought is that we've reached NFL Week 11 now, and I really cannot remember the last time this late in an NFL season I felt like the Patriots had simply no chance to win a Super Bowl. Can you remember a time where Week 11 – even with Matt Castle, that one year where Tom Brady was out, I went, you know what? This team feels like they can make the playoffs and it'll be interesting. I have zero belief the Patriots have any shot to win the Super Bowl or do anything interesting this year. And that surprises me a ton. And so I don't really know what the Patriots are doing because they had two embarrassing losses to Denver, especially was awful. Then they lost to the 49ers, got blown out. They were losing. Now they've won two in a row. They beat the Jets barely, but then they beat the Ravens in a really interesting win because the Ravens are considered a very good football team. 
Now the Patriots are four and five, and I go, I, I don't understand really what the thought process is. What's happening? What, what are they trying to do? The Patriots do not appear to be tanking because unless they were trying to, you know, they're going to take a sudden left turn maybe, unless the Patriots just suddenly suck tomorrow, they're going to win too many games to get a really high-level quarterback like Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence or Zach Wilson. They're not going to have a top pick in the NFL draft. Uh, and I just, I really don't understand. The Patriots quarterback situation is very weird to me. First of all, poor Cam Newton was kind of set up to fail where even Tom Brady, who I think is a better quarterback than Cam Newton, even Tom Brady couldn't do anything with this same offense last year. So the Patriots have no weapons. Cam Newton never really had a reasonable shot to be successful. I was very briefly convinced that maybe he was going to work because he looked really good against the Seahawks, but now we've learned since then, hey, Seattle's defense is not very good. And it's sad because Cam Newton, in my opinion, is still actually very capable of playing at a decent level in the NFL. And then I remember when New England even added Cam Newton, kind of feeling like it was a move to be more competitive, and it hasn't worked. And I guess in hindsight, it made sense to add Cam Newton where you said, my receivers aren't very good. If we get a quarterback who can run and design a power running offense, maybe that'll work. I, I really don't know. I guess I'm kind of randomly spewing all kinds of not like Belichick giving quotes. The quarterback situation is confusing. The Patriots do not appear to be tanking, but I don't know. What is the long-term answer at quarterback for New England? I really don't know. It doesn't appear to be Cam. It doesn't appear to be Jarrett Stidham. They're too good for a top pick. Remember the Jaguars, Washington, the Jets, the Cowboys, the Giants, they're all worse than New England. They all probably are going to be in the conversation for quarterbacks. They won't all get quarterbacks, but some of them are going to be talking about drafting a quarterback. They're all more likely to get a quarterback before New England. Maybe the Patriots trade up with the Chargers or Cincinnati. Maybe the Patriots sign Dak Prescott. But I'm not sure that Sam Darnold's going to get traded to New England because why would the Jets trade with a division rival? Dwayne Haskins is just bad. Maybe you bring back Jimmy Garoppolo. I guess I'm, I'm rambling here, but my point is I, I have no idea what the Patriots' long-term plan at quarterback is. It's unsettling and it's weird. Again, they've won too many games to be tanking. Bill has been weird. They're playing. He's giving weird quotes. There's been weird moves in New England. And I wonder if Bill Belichick is just going through the motions, kind of waiting for next year. Here's a weird thought. Maybe he realized, hey, because of COVID, you cannot depend on anybody or anything like at all. And remember, the Patriots for years have always relied on attention to detail. They've been very, very driven by, we will do the little things better than you. How can you manage to do all the little things right and play you know, pay extreme attention to detail when you can't even practice because of COVID. The facility shut down. Cam Newton had a positive test for COVID. He missed a game. So at any moment, randomly, your quarterback can get COVID and just be out for the very next game indefinitely. I mean, just imagine if the day before the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes got COVID and can't play. Uh, Bill Belichick might have looked at all this whole thing going on. Maybe Cam Newton getting COVID was the moment where big Bill Belichick realized, I can't rely on anything. I can't trust anything. It's all maybe kind of blind luck with COVID. And maybe Bill Belichick realized all this and said, I'm going to go through the motions. Maybe he's just waiting for next year. I, I, I don't know. I'm asking questions here. I mean, you look at Bill Belichick. He doesn't need to win. There's no pressure on him. 
every other coach in the NFL is fighting for their job or their legacy or they have some reason why they need to be fighting hard. Bill Belichick has no reason. He He's earned the right to have a bad year. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's going to be mad at Bill Belichick if the year there's COVID and you lose Tom Brady and half your team opts out if you're bad. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's going to bat an eye. Nobody's going to hold that against Bill Belichick. In fact, people keep writing about how Bill Belichick's giving weird quotes rather than criticizing him. In fact, a lot of people are praising Bill Belichick for how good a job he's doing coaching. And Bill Belichick has supported his players opting out. That's probably, I mean, from a reasonable perspective, that's all you can do as a coach. If your players are like, hey, I'm nervous about COVID and they're not, I'm not going to play. As a coach, you can't be like, well, screw you. Like, If you want to work with that person ever again, all you can do is, you know what? I support you. Do your thing. But Bill Belichick seemed oddly warm to the idea of his best players not playing at all this year. Does anybody think that's weird? I, I'm just, again, I feel like I'm rambling about, I'm going here and there and all, I'm all over the map here. Again, I, I, these are all questions I have. I don't really know where this leads. But you can't beat COVID. Nobody can. Maybe Bill Belichick isn't trying to beat COVID. Maybe he realized, hey, the NFL cannot work without all 32 teams playing. So I have to play. I can't take a year off. But he knows he can't win the Super Bowl. His best players opted out. He's got no weapons on offense. Sometimes, and almost at random, your facility is shut down and you can't practice because of COVID. Or you're missing players. Nothing is reliable. You do not have a long-term quarterback. I don't get it. I, I For the life of me. I'm rambling, I'm spewing, I cannot understand what is going on in New England. I, I wish I could call Bill Belichick, but dude, Bill, what's up? What are you doing? What's your plan? I don't know. Did the year not go how Bill Belichick expected? Were, you know, why are they, why have they won too many games to be tanking? Were they, you know, are they fighting? I mean, they're fighting too hard to tank. I just, I, they're not tanking. That's not what's happening. And then what's the long-term plan, both at quarterback and for your franchise? I don't know, Bill. I don't understand. I'm confused. I have no idea what to make of Bill Belichick and the Patriots. I can't figure out the plan. And I I, I just, I find them incredibly fascinating. I, I don't know what's going on. I've talked now for like 30 minutes, I feel like, about Bill Belichick and asking question after question. I don't know what's happening. And for the life of me, I, I'm so curious to see how the year plays out for the Patriots, what quarterback they have next year. I, you know, Tom Brady left to the Buccaneers and, and good for Tom Brady. I'm happy for Tom, but I got to say, I, I am way more interested in the Patriots because I just, I cannot figure out what their plan is or what kind of future they have for them as a franchise. I just don't know. And I, I really cannot wait to watch and see what happens with the Patriots as time goes on down the road. All right, final topic of the day. On Sunday, we had the Turkish Grand Prix. Uh, Lewis Hamilton won. In second place, you had Sergio Perez. Sebastian Vettel also got a podium with third place. Carlo, uh, Charles Leclerc got fourth. Carlos Sainz got fifth. Max Verstappen got sixth. Alex Albin, the other Red Bull, got seventh place. Lando Norris got eighth. Lance Stroll, who was in the lead for forever, got ninth. And then Daniel Ricciardo got 10th place in the Turkish Grand Prix, I guess at Istanbul. Uh, before we get into Lewis Hamilton, I want to give a shout out to Sergio Perez. I was really, really impressed with Sergio Perez. Uh, you know, at, at the Imola uh, Grand Prix Racing Point, kind of made Sergio take a late pit stop and it cost him an opportunity to have a podium place. So 
in this race, the next week he finally got his podium. I was very happy about that. And I guess my question is, as I've been watching Sergio Perez this year, I've been really um, just impressed. I've really grown to like the guy. I've really grown to believe in him. He's a good race car driver. He's just a really good driver. And if somehow Sergio Perez does not have a Formula One spot next year, it'd be totally ridiculous for Nicholas Latifi and Antonio Giovinazzi to have a drive, but not Sergio Perez. That makes no sense. It's ridiculous. And it really, I think it's worth saying, like, you can say, well, politics and this and that, but no, do not, do teams not want to win? If Red Bull has Alex Albin instead of Sergio Perez, I'm just going to say, Red Bull, you're not trying to win anymore. You're, you're taking a guy who's, you have an inferior driver when a guy is sitting out there waiting for a spot, just dangling. You're telling me you don't want Sergio Perez. I don't get it. I don't understand. He's won me over. And I just, you would think that a team that wants to be competitive would go get Sergio Perez. If he doesn't have a drive, it's, it's almost criminal. It makes no sense. Uh, Sebastian Vettel got third. I think the world is kind of reminded, oh yeah, hey, Sebastian Vettel's a good driver. He can still drive with the best. So that was very, very cool. Um, now, it was a wet day. Uh, they had also just applied a new tarmac to the track in Istanbul. It was really slippery. I don't really blame the Turkish, uh, the Turkish track organizers because this race was put together last minute. It's hard to do what they did. It's a, it's a really kind of a grand feat to put together an F1 race with so little uh, notice. However, the cars were spinning out all over the place. Turn one was crazy. I called my girlfriend out and rewound it and said, just watch the madness. It was fun. And like everybody was spinning. Daniel Ricardo spun around as I believe. And it was just interesting and fun. Uh, remember it's wet from the rain. It's also wet from the new track and the tarmac. And I remember just looking at that and going, I, I cannot imagine trying to race in those conditions, let alone in a form of the one car. Uh, no way. I mean, trying to drive through that cloud of water spray on that track. I mean, I, I don't feel like I could ever do that. Now, it's interesting, in that kind of race, you have to really toe the line between pushing the limits of the car and then remaining safe and being careful that you don't spin out or lose the car or something bad happens. And it was kind of fun watching because Lewis Hamilton did not lead for most of the race. Uh, actually, Lance Stroll did. He led for like what felt like 30 laps or something crazy like that. And it was very interesting because Lewis moved up from the middle of the pack and ended up winning by a lot. But to do that, Lewis had to be patient. And in winning this race, in the process, Lewis became a seven-time Formula One world champion. He's now won his, he won his seventh Formula One championship, which is pretty crazy. That's a lot of titles. But what he deserves credit for, in my opinion, from Sunday is the way he has been driving recently without emotion. He's been very calculated, been very smart, uh, and very, very patient as a driver. In Turkey, I watched a lot of people make overly aggressive emotional mistakes. Lance Stroll, Max Verstappen, Alex Albin, Charles Leclerc. Lewis Hamilton has grown so much as a driver. Sunday was a masterclass where he showed off, yeah, I'm really, really great. That race on Sunday is not a race he would have won in the past. You know, he's back in the pack. He, it's, there's poor track conditions. It's very, very wet. I think in, a couple of years ago, Lewis could have realized, you know what? I can win the championship next weekend. I'm okay. I, I, I don't really need to, to push myself to do this. But instead, he was patient. He was calculated. And as a result, he ended up winning by a lot. 
Now, I want to address a kind of a great debate in Formula One. People always say, you know, why is Lewis Hamilton so dominant in Formula One? Is it the car or is it the driver? I want to be very, very clear. It's both. You need a great driver driving a great car. So Max Verstappen spun out in this race where he was making an over-aggressive move to try to get up into second place. And Alex Albon spun out. Lance Stroll made a costly lunge because he was mad about being passed. And Charles Leclerc got greedy on the final lap where he was pushing for second instead of getting third and ended up in fourth. As a that, that kind of push for second pushed him all the way back into fourth place. And there were a lot of really, really good drivers in Istanbul on Sunday. But Lewis Hamilton was the best. Lewis Hamilton was phenomenal. He patiently waited for the right moment to strike. And when it came, he took off. By the end, with like eight laps to go, he was ahead by 19 seconds. It's unbelievable. The the distance he made and the times he was hitting when he was all by himself. And, and the other Mercedes, Valtteri Botas, finished in 14th place in this race. So it's clearly not just the car. If it's just the car, why was Valtteri Botas in 14th place? I guess, do you elevate the car or does the car elevate you? Nobody's going to win a driver's championship by being elevated by the car alone. That's not a sustainable way to win race after race after race. You need a great car and you need a great driver. You need a driver who can elevate their great car if you want to win a Formula One championship. Lewis Hamilton has the best car. But Sunday, he also showed in wet, slippery, hard conditions. He showed, yeah, I'm also the best driver. It gave him an opportunity to show off just how much he's mastered his craft. So again, let's end the long-standing debate. People want to say, he's only good because of the car. And look, certainly, it really helps Lewis Hamilton to have that brilliant car. But it's also not just the car. He lapped his teammate. I mean, if the car was that great, why was Andre Botas in 14th place? Again, it's I just, come on, guys. He's won seven world championships. We've gotten to see something very, very rare and very, very cool with Lewis Hamilton where it's an amazing pairing. You have the best driver and also the best car. How many times in sports have we seen the best player also with the best team around him? It almost never happens. And when it does happen, we get to see dominance. So I want to give a shout out to Lewis Hamilton he gets a lot of hate. People hate on him. He's a driver for Mercedes. He's, it's all the car, this or that. Shut up. Shut, you don't win seven world championships if it's just the car. It, it just, I, this debate needs to end. It needs to stop. The car makes him better. Uh, I think every F1 driver needs a good car. If Max Verstappen ever wants to win an F1 championship, he needs a great car. And he probably needs to be a little bit more patient. Uh, and maybe you could argue that the car gives Lewis the opportunity to be patient because he knows it'll he can trust it more. If you want to do that, fine. Lewis Hamilton's unbelievable. Do not take away from his success by saying, it's all the car. Shut up. It's stupid. I hate that argument. It drives me nuts. Uh, yeah, hats off to Lewis Hamilton. Great race on Sunday. And uh, he's a well-deserved Formula One world champion, world champion once again for the seventh time in his career, tying Michael Schumacher, it's amazing. And uh, I think if he wants to, it seems like Lewis could go get another one, maybe another one after that. I am really excited to watch the future of Lewis Hamilton 
and uh, we will see what he wants to do in his career. But I, I'm excited to watch Lewis and uh, see what he does with the rest of his career in Formula One. All right, guys, that's all I have. Thank you so very much for tuning in. I love you. I am tired. I want to go watch the Seahawks play on Thursday Night Football. I appreciate you. I'm going to go. Hope you have a great day. Ba-dum-bum. Bam. We are done.